My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, thanks to everybody who submitted Halloween stories for our sixth annual Box of Oddities Halloween special. So many incredible stories, and guys tell them so well. And we need to, because of the sheer vastness of the sea of stories we've received, uh, we're going to do two. We're going to do two volumes of your scary stories this year on the Box of Oddities Halloween special. The next two episodes you will hear will be our very special and very favorite episodes of the year. Super excited and knee deep in editing right now. So let's get going. And if you've got friends that enjoy this kind of thing, get them in the box this Halloween. What a great introduction to the Box of Oddities, listening to spooky stories that really happened to people who have recorded and submitted them themselves. Maybe even your story. So because we're going to be dealing with a lot of uh, really spooky stuff, and because my past few topics have been very Halloween-centric, mm-hmm. shall we say, yeah. I'm going to depart from that just a little bit. This is just a weird story that oh. I think that you'll find interesting. Okay. I'm suspicious, but open. In 1959, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower. That is creepy. He was, uh, I didn't say creepy. It's just strange, unusual. Okay. Anyway, Eisenhower was trying to introduce the benefits of capitalism to the Soviet Union. Um, He put together the American National Exhibition in Moscow, and he sent engineers to build this futuristic pavilion that highlights American art and fashion, consumer goods and culture. It was U.S. propaganda. Yes, but there was a lot of free stuff. Oh, swag. Propaganda swag. (laughs) Look, mother... I got a stress ball at the convention. <laughs> it says U.S. of A right on it. <laughs> I apologize. Those yes, were terrible so, accents. So sorry. We shouldn't have done <laughs> The event was a massive success. It actually drew over 2 million visitors. 
it uh, created some tensions, even though it was a, for the most part, optimistic atmosphere. It was disrupted by then Vice President Richard Nixon when he got into a heated argument with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Uh huh. So this is supposed to be a goodwill tour, right? And Nixon's over there, right up in uh, Khrushchev's face, standing next to them was the vice president of Pepsi-Cola Company. And so he tried to defuse the situation by offering Khrushchev a cup of their signature soft drink. Now, the gesture not only alleviated the immediate tension, but also paved the way for a long-lasting relationship between Pepsi and the USSR. The Soviets (laughs) loved Pepsi. That's awesome. They couldn't get enough of it. So by the early 70s, Pepsi had made a huge mark in the uh, Soviet Union, thanks in part to that memorable exchange between Pepsi's vice president and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Right, cooling. Cooling things down in more ways than one. The appetite for Pepsi was evident. Pepsi saw an opportunity to expand its market reach into the Soviet territory. However... There was a significant roadblock to some sort of straightforward trade, trade relations between the U.S. and the Soviet. This was the the Cold War. Right. And the Soviet ruble was not easily convertible on the uh, international market due to a variety of uh, economic and political and historical reasons. Like what? I didn't know that was a thing. It was economic sanctions that uh, the U.S. had put on. The Soviet Union. Got it. That makes sense. Not just that there was something weird about the ruble. You just couldn't convert it. I just, that would have been very interesting to me. (laughs) Well, it did make Western companies, it made it difficult for them to conduct traditional business with the USSR. So they had to get creative. And given the circumstances, both parties uh, had to think outside the box. And this led them to a unique barter agreement. Instead of conventional monetary exchange, Pepsi and the Soviet government agreed upon a goods-for-goods trade agreement, kind of get around the economic sanction thing. Pepsi would provide the Soviet Union with the syrup required to produce Pepsi, which, of course, was in huge demand at the time in the Mm -hmm. USSR. In return for the Pepsi syrup, the Soviet Union offered one of its most famous exports, Stolichnaya Vodka. Vodka. It's a premium vodka brand and uh, has a solid reputation. It was highly sought after in international markets, especially the U.S., because it was nearly impossible to get. I went through a big Stoli phase in my 20s. Yeah. There's a drink called a Stoli salad, and I was I've heard of that. way into it for a bit. And it's what I got anywhere I went. Is that what made you a vegetarian? No, it's what made me underweight and poor. (laughs) But I got better. The agreement allowed Pepsi to sell the vodka in the U.S. market, and uh, that provided the company with a very lucrative revenue stream. But the deal wasn't just about soda pop and spirits. It, It also symbolized a very unique instance of cooperation and mutual benefit during the Cold War. I have more questions. I'm so sorry to no. keep interrupting you, Go ahead. but what did Pepsi do with the Stoli? They sold it on the U.S. Did market. they sell it as a Pepsi product or did they just like have a yard sale and... Vodka and Pepsi? 
in the same can? No, I, I think <laughs> no, that they, no, no. they distributed it, I would imagine, through their Pepsi distributing network. It just became a Pepsi distributed product. It wasn't like they just put up a marketplace ad <laughs> and were like, we've got these pallets of Stoli. Yeah, come and get them. Okay, go ahead. By 1989, the deal needed to be renewed. Pepsi had firmly locked itself into the cultural and commercial landscape at the Soviet Union. The demand for Pepsi was huge and it was growing all the time. And Pepsi was exporting large quantities of its syrup to meet the growing thirst of Soviet consumers. The popularity turned out to be kind of a double-edged sword uh, because the Soviet Union couldn't keep up with the payments. It led to a significant financial challenge. I'm sorry, the payments of Stoli? Yeah. Russia was having a hard time producing Stoli? They were drinking more Pepsi than they were producing Stoli at the time. What? I know. That's kind of the thing they're known for. <laughs> By now, the Soviets owed Pepsi a staggering amount that reached into the billions of dollars. Wow. And this was 1989 billions of dollars. The debt wasn't merely a number on paper. It represented a substantial financial commitment that needed to be squared off. Now, the problem was the nature of the Soviet currency. The ruble still, they, they couldn't really use it. While the Soviets might have had enough rubles to settle the debt domestically, they had little or no value outside of the USSR. Mm. And adding to the problem was uh, the Soviets' deteriorating economic situation. So by the end of the 80s, the Soviet economy was facing huge challenges, falling prices, inefficiency in state-owned enterprises, and uh, an increase in expenditures on defense and, and subsidiaries. And this was a major problem for both parties. Pepsi wanted its money, of course. It was owed billions of dollars. But it was owed billions of dollars by a superpower that couldn't pay an internationally recognized currency. This is so interesting. At the same time, the Soviets, they had their pride and they had an international image at stake. They needed to find a solution to honor their obligations without further straining its already fragile economy. While bartering goods for goods was not uncommon in history... The scale and nature of this particular proposal was, was undoubtedly unparalleled. Faced with a seemingly insurmountable debt and a currency that held no sway, the Soviets turned to their vast military resources for a solution. They offered Pepsi naval vessels as payment what? for a commercial debt. It was uncharted territory. I love this. More people should barter. That's just my... My feeling, but on a grander scale, more countries should barter. This is fun. So instead of vodka, the Soviets offered Pepsi a fleet of ships to settle their debt. And they didn't offer just any ships. <laughs> they offered a diverse range of naval vessels, including 17 submarines used primarily for underwater warfare and reconnaissance, a cruiser which is a large, large warship capable of engaging multiple targets, a frigate, a medium-sized warship, and a destroyer, which is a fast and maneuverable ship. This made Pepsi, the Pepsi-Cola company, for a brief period of time, the sixth largest Navy fleet in the world. I was just going to ask that. 
That's incredible. Of course, Pepsi didn't want to keep them, right? They just weren't going to sell them off. When they got the fleet as payment, Pepsi found itself in kind of a unprecedented situation, shall we say? No, there is no business playbook strategy that could have prepared them for owning a Navy. There's a real marketing opportunity here for Pepsi. (laughs) Pepsi and subs. What goes better together than Pepsi and subs? (laughs) Missed opportunity. (laughs) The idea of momentarily possessing the sixth largest naval fleet in the world was noteworthy, but the practical challenges that came with it were significant. You know, just maintaining a fleet like that or storing a fleet of that magnitude, it's an enormous undertaking, especially for a a company whose expertise lies in carbonated beverages. Right. Did they consider keeping them at all? Like, because that would have been a funny conversation in a meeting room. Like, (laughs) all right, well, what could we do? Yeah. Okay, we'll sell most of them, but but let's keep the frigate. So they recognized the limitations and the potential pitfalls of holding on to this fleet, and they decided to monetize the assets uh, in the most straightforward way possible, which was to sell. They were in the beverage business, not the battleship business. But this wasn't even simple. You could, you, like you said, you can't just you know put a sign in the yard and say, <laughs> "Hey, naval fleet for sale," not just because of the immense expense of it but also because of the international implications. Yeah, but think of the marketing opportunities. Join the Pepsi army. Pepsi had a hard time finding a buyer because when you're selling a naval fleet, you can't sell it to people who are irresponsible. The international community has things to say about that. Wait, so there are some sort of background checks regarding these weapons (laughs) that, Mm. huh. Interesting. But Pepsi did find a suitable buyer, a Swedish firm that specialized in scrap recycling. Sweden, with its neutrality and its reputation for recycling, provided the perfect destination for these vessels. Yeah, because internationally, everyone's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Give those big things to Sweden. They're not going to use them. They're just going to tear them apart and melt them down. Love it. The Swedish company's intent was to dismantle the ships and recycle their components. Naval vessels are made up of vast amounts of metal, of course, including steel, copper, other valuable materials. Sometimes Uh, mahogany. By breaking down the ships, the company could recover and repurpose these materials, selling them on the market or using them in various industries. Pepsi managed to liquidate the unexpected assets, converting the ships into cash through a third party, all while avoiding the potential political and logistical pitfalls of owning a military fleet. Amazing. So the deal's completed, okay? And the, the uh, president and C- CEO of PepsiCo, Don Kendall, was, uh, he reportedly had a chance encounter with the then U.S. National Security Advisor, Brent Swocroft. During the exchange... He uh, jokingly declared to the U.S. government, we're disarming the Soviet Union faster than you are. (laughs) So Pepsi once owned the sixth largest naval fleet in the world. Ah, I love that. My source information, the BBC, History Extra, and foreignpolicy.com. That's so much fun. Do you remember that... um a couple years ago, I shared on the social meds the Gorbachev 
Pizza Hut commercial. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Wow. <laughs> like the whole idea was the the patrons in the Pizza Hut were torn about how they felt about Gorbachev, which he he was totally fine with this apparently. One was like, he's bringing us political instability. And the other one was like, he's bringing us hope. And then an old lady's like, he brought us Pizza Hut. (laughs) (laughs) Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, bizarre modern headlines. Read in old-timey newsreel style. Police are looking for a driver who crashed his car into a liquor store, facing 1,218 open container violations. Zoo separates five parrots after birds were caught encouraging each other to swear at guests. Girl discovers weird-tasting chocolate advent calendar she had been eating was meant for cats. Man fined for pretending to be a ghost in Portsmouth Cemetery. People sticking random objects up their bums is costing the government $350,000 a year. Chantal sent us this email. Hello, favorite freaks. Just listen to the latest episode in which JG spoke of the Rendlesham Forest incident. While listening, I couldn't help thinking about the hubris of the human race, always assuming a competitive standing with our theorized space neighbors. (laughs) However, I theorized that this story sounded more like a scientist checking in on a long-term research project. Project name, Exploration of Humanity. Timestamp. 666-8100, location coordinates, summary of project, planetary advancement experiment, and then the billing code at the bottom for expenses. <laughs> God, I hope they code it right. My insurance company never does. After observing its subjects and their satellite technology, they upgraded the contact language to binary code to communicate because that's what our world was predominantly using with satellite technology. In the past when they visited, Before widespread use of Wi-Fi, they used colors and sounds because that's what their little experimental creatures were using to communicate with radio and TV waves. Okay. Earlier visitors used hieroglyphics, and the project experiment 
pyramids all over the planet, jumps in knowledge and tool development, and oh hell, maybe altering DNA to create Homo sapiens. And now they come back to check on their long-term science project. We are the Coco, the talking gorillas of the alien species. Oh, can we get a kitten? This would certainly explain all the probing. Ancient alien theorists would agree, am I right? <laughs> Always a pleasure to get my freak on with you two. I agree with all of that. I find it very intriguing. That seems right. Especially the probing part. Intriguing, huh? I mean, I'm not trying to pressure you into anything. But <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. The paranormal lovers responded regarding the conversation we had about the lady who put the steak in her purse. And you asked, I wonder if there was like a Ziploc baggie in there. Uh-huh. Nope. She didn't have a bag, they wrote. <laughs> she wrapped that steak up in a napkin and took it home to her mama. How about that? <laughs> Kayla writes, hey guys, I had to message you when you were talking about giving dogs and cats treats and how they tend to remember you. I'm a delivery driver and I deliver in a lot of very rural towns. A lot of houses have cats and dogs and I always carry dog treats with me and a lot of the dogs remember me because I give them treats. It's my way of saying I come in peace. Sometimes when I see a whole bunch of cats and they seem friendly and not scampering off, I will break up one of my dog treats for them. One time, I went to this one place, and they had a lot of cats and kittens, and they all ran out from their hiding places as soon as I pulled up in my van. They definitely remembered me as the treat lady. I'm forever thankful to be on good terms with all animals. We were out yesterday walking around, and Cat, of course, has her, her purse full of dog treats, and it seems like some of the dogs here are very particular about what kind of food they're going to eat, even yeah. though they're strays. And so Kat started in her mind and out loud planning on how to boil a chicken and carry that in her purse. So if anybody wants to get Kat something for her upcoming birthday, it's a boiled chicken purse. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Jamie shared a topic suggestion on the Freaks group. It was the story of Mary Bell. 
her distinction mm-hmm. of being the Britain's youngest serial killer. She uh, committed her first murder on the day of her 11th birthday. Yeah. And she was like, can we talk about this? And I commented, this story, you know, really upsets me. And Jamie said, does that mean that it's suitable Halloween content? (laughs) (laughs) And so I wrote back and I said, I just can't do it. This story is so dark and it's not what she did. It's how she got to that point. It's Mm -hmm. what her home life was like before she got there. And so I explained that. And Jamie was like, that makes sense. I totally get it. No problem. (laughs) And I was like, I appreciate you because I just can't talk about it. It's too, it's too dark. It's too awful. It makes me feel all kinds of things. And I know I'd end up crying and then we'd get complaints because apparently I'm not allowed to have feelings. No, you're allowed to have feelings. You just need to push them down deep inside. (laughs) Yeah. Like you do. Like I do. (laughs) Push them down. (laughs) Don't ever let anybody know that you feel anything ever. (laughs) You'll be much better off for it. So what did you decide on? The Legend of Stingy Jack. Okay, settle in, kids. According to the story, Stingy Jack was a clever yet deceitful man who enjoyed playing tricks on others, including the devil himself. Jack did this not once, but twice. He tricked the devil two times? That's right. Wow, devil is stupid. Jack was dying according to legend, and he was spending his last night on earth at a pub when the devil came to collect his soul. Jack made a deal in exchange for one last drink. The devil, thinking he had the upper hand, transformed into a sixpence to pay the bartender. But Jack was lightning fast, and he snatched the coin and slyly put it in his pocket, right next to a silver cross he happened to be carrying. The devil, next to the silver cross, now got stuck as a coin and couldn't change back. It's a good thing he had that silver cross in his pants because if the devil retransformed into the Prince of Darkness in his slacks, Mm. that would have been very uncomfortable. Yeah, for for everyone, really. Style situation. Yeah. Ugh, I love Mark Ruffalo. Anyway. Now, Jack wasn't going to let the devil go so easily, so he made the devil promise not to claim his soul for 10 whole years. The devil, not really having much of an option, not wanting to stay a coin, had no choice but to agree, hoping to catch Jack later. So we're going to fast forward 10 years now. And the devil's still in his pants? No, he... he Oh, he released him. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Did I not make that clear? No, you probably did. I was just envisioning what that would look like transforming Hulk-like, you know, into the devil. Sure. Yeah. Fast forward 10 years, Jack's walking down a country road, minding his own business, and the devil shows up and is like, I want back in your pants. Huh? Just kidding. He didn't say that. He said, it's time, you know, to pay up. I'm collecting your soul. Them's the breaks, Jack. <coughs> but Jack wasn't one to back down. So he asked the devil for one last favor before sealing the deal. He wanted the devil to fetch him an apple from a nearby tree. As you mentioned, the devil apparently not too bright in this Uh legend, I guess. So he's climbing the tree, which so many things about this concern me. Like the devil has to climb a tree to get an apple from it. Wouldn't his horns get all caught in the branches and stuff? Couldn't he just summon the apple? Isn't he that powerful? Or at least get a stick and like poke it off the tree. Make better choices, Beazelbub. Yeah, it's not like it's the first time he's pulled an apple out of a tree. See, that's a Genesis reference. Phil Collins? Exactly. And the lamb lies down on Broadway. 
So the devil's climbing this tree, and Jack quickly carved a cross into the trunk, and that trapped the devil in the tree. He couldn't get out because now the cross was on the trunk. And that was, he had to go past. So that's what happened. Wow. The devil was furious, obviously, but Jack once again had the upper hand. So he made the devil promise not to claim his soul ever. Obviously, devil wanted out of this tree. So he was like, all right, I guess. <laughs> so the deal was made and they were both on their way. When Jack eventually passed away, his soul faced an unexpected predicament. His life of deceit and mischief and... I assume discotheking, made it impossible <laughs> for him to enter heaven. But the devil, obviously, could not claim his soul either. So Jack was left stranded between realms, wandering in the darkness. Was there disco music playing? No, I said he couldn't go to hell. I did there. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I love disco. So to aid in his eternal journey, the devil tossed Jack a single burning coal from the fires of hell. Jack placed this fiery ember inside a turnip that he had hollowed out, and the glow from the coal illuminated his path as he roamed the earth, earning the moniker Jack of the Lantern. Ah, okay. All right. I find it interesting, though, that there are turnips in purgatory. That seems more like a hell thing to me. I hate turnips. See, I think turnips are very middle of the road. So anyway, in case you didn't pick up on that, it's Jack-O-Lantern. Yeah. 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 Jack, Jack, oh, the lantern. Yeah. So the tale of Stingy Jack's encounter with the devil and his creation of the Jack-O-Lantern has been one of the many influences on Halloween traditions. Pumpkin carving as a Halloween tradition has its roots in ancient Celtic festivals of Samhain. During the festival, it was common for people to use turnips and other vegetables and carve them into lanterns to ward off spirits. Interestingly enough, the spirits they were trying to ward off were ones like Jack, not necessarily the <laughs> devil. Oh, great. Which is interesting. He can't win, that poor guy. Well, I mean, he lived a life of deceit and Casey and the Sunshine Band. Mm. Samhain marked the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the winter in the Celtic calendar, and that fell on the evening of October 31st. It was believed that on this night, the boundary between the living and the spirit world was at its thinnest, allowing spirits and other supernatural beings to cross over into our realm. Like that, like in Fringe. During Samhain, the Celts would light bonfires as a way to ward off evil spirits and provide protection for the coming winter. And these fires were a central part of the festival and served as a gathering place for the community. People would dress in costumes made from animal skins and heads, attempting to imitate or disguise themselves as the spirits that roamed the earth. This practice was believed to confuse and ward off any malevolent entities that might be lurking about. Lurking. Now, as the influence of Christianity spread across Europe, the celebration of Samhain merged with the Christian holiday of All Saints Day, which was dedicated to honoring saints and martyrs. All Saints Day originally took place on May 13th, but was eventually moved to November 1st by Pope Gregory III in the 8th century. And very often that was the case where um, organized religion wanted to bump out pagan holidays. So they would kind of, oh, this happens to be on the same day and we mm. have some similar traditions so you won't feel so sad about <laughs> not being a heathen anymore. Pope Gregory III just sounds so stodgy. I would, if, if it were me, I would have called myself P. Greg Three. I like that. Mm. 
all up in the house of worship. Would you have had a rap album? I would have called myself the Village Papal. Back to disco, huh? Mm-hmm. You know I have to make an album cover for that now, right? <laughs> <laughs> the Village Papal, yeah. <laughs> all right. The evening before All Saints Day became known as All Hallows' Eve, that eventually evolved into Halloween. The traditions and customs of Samhain gradually blended with those other holidays, creating a unique and rich cultural tapestry. Now, originally, people were carving the menacing faces into turnips and beets and potatoes and placing candles inside them to ward off these malevolent spirits. But when Irish immigrants brought the tradition to the States, they discovered that pumpkins were much more abundant and much easier to carve, mm. lending to a widespread use of pumpkins for jack-o'-lanterns during Halloween festivities. So it became pumpkins in the U.S. That's right. Okay. Isn't it funny when you carve a pumpkin, it just takes you right back. The smell takes you right back to being a kid at Halloween. Like the smell of a Christmas tree. Mm. Seasonal olfactory memories. Pumpkin carving, I think, is one of my favorite traditions of all traditions. Really? I love it. We've done some pretty extravagant ones. I remember the year that you did a carving relief rather than carving into the pumpkin. Mm -hmm. And then you got so frustrated because you didn't like the way it looked. But I thought that it looked awesome. And it looked like an old creepy man. And then as the pumpkin started to deteriorate mm -hmm. over the days, yeah. it just looked creepier and creepier. Yeah, that worked out pretty well <laughs> it did. in the long run. Mm. But I appreciate your squash experimentation. <laughs> So the legend of Stingy Jack with his clever trickery became part of the not just jack-o'-lanterning, but the tricking of that comes with Halloween. But there are so many traditions. Bobbing for apples, for example. Though not as popular as it has been in the past, bobbing for apples has made its way into Halloween traditions by way of ancient Celtic origins. But they incorporated it into their Samhain festivities from an even earlier tradition. Bobbing for apples traces back to the courting ritual that was part of a Roman festival honoring Pomona, the goddess of agriculture and abundance. The apple was considered a symbol of fertility, abundance, and divination. And they believed that by participating in apple-related activities mm -hmm. that they could gain insights into their future and receive blessings for the coming year. <clears throat> so this game was a form of divination. Apples would be placed in a large basin or tub filled with water, and participants would try to grab the apples with their teeth without using their hands. It was believed that the first person to successfully catch an apple would be the next to marry or experience good fortune and love, which <laughs> makes sense because they're skilled with their mouth. I apologize. Inappropriate. I'm talking about rhyming. While bobbing for apples, as I said, not practice as much today, it still holds nostalgic charm. Now, while the religious aspects have diminished over the centuries and holidays have spread to different parts of the world through immigration, Halloween has incorporated local customs along the way. And it serves as a reminder of the ancient traditions and how over time, the Pomona party and Samhain and All Hallows' Eve all merged together like we do as a people. And I think that's nice. And it's my favorite holiday. Also, the world's largest jack-o'-lantern was carved in 2010, and it weighed over 2,000 pounds. Good Lord. Right? Where do they clean it out? With a backhoe? How do you how do you got a pumpkin that size? I don't know. I don't even understand it. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I got my information from history.com, graceport.com, Britannica, and Time. 
Hey, we were wondering if you'd do us a favor. If you have not uh, rated us yet or written a positive review on whatever platform you listen on, could you take a moment and do that? That really helps us to grow the show. Uh, We hate asking that because uh, you have to actually do something. And we're not here to complicate your life. But but do it, will you? God, please. We appreciate it. Halloween special coming up next. In fact, a two-parter. We'll see you then. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. Something seems a little off. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.